Hi. If you've tuned into Declarations before, you might be wondering why this particular episode's audio quality is a little bit different than what you're used to. We've been pulling together this story from across the planet as our panelists have been separated due to the global COVID-19 pandemic. We ask that you please bear with us as we figure out how to do this whole podcasting thing across the globe, transnationally, and over far vaster distances than what we're used to. Thank you so much for your patience. Enjoy the show. Davis said, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. 1004. In 2019, that number alone represents the people who have been killed by the police in the United States. Let that sink in. That number alone represents only a reported number of deaths and does not include the force brutality, and violence experienced every day by the African-American community in the United States. George Floyd, David McAtee, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, this year alone, those individuals have been killed by the police. Let that sink in. The list goes on. Let us remember them and let us say no more to the injustices experienced by so many individuals in communities that have historically and pervasively been subject to the harsh atrocities of state violence, police brutality, oppression, and institutional racism. This is not a new problem. It is a deeply rooted and historically prevalent problem that must be addressed urgently in all aspects of our lives by everyone. We here at Declarations are making it very clear that we believe enough is enough. We're here to talk, discuss, share and inform, to have those uncomfortable conversations that we've needed to have as human beings for so long. Right now, as we battle not only a global pandemic, but a deeply rooted racism that exists at all levels and in all aspects of our society, it is time for us to make a shift. A shift in focus that is absolutely necessary. So what have we decided to do? As a human rights podcast, we've approached the subject of human rights in theory and in practice from various angles, and examined its topicality in different parts of the world. Some prefer to conceive of rights as responsibilities. Regardless of the vernacular, there are ways of framing a prior fundamental question. How do we live and thrive together? We have, due to the nature of our podcast, focused on specific causes, cases and issues. This time, however, we have decided to approach the topic of racism from a wide-angle perspective. An issue such as racism is as complex as it is multifaceted and, and pervasive. It requires not only an examination of the specific injustices that will have been occurring for generations, but of a deeply rooted inquest into the root causes of the racist institutions and systems that have been allowed to continue with this violent oppression for so long. 
What has been the subject of feverish news coverage in the past weeks is the state's unfortunately a reflection of the realities of the lives of many individuals, and particularly the African-American community and people of color living in the United States. The criminalization, brute force, and systemic violence and oppression that black bodies face on a daily basis can no longer be taken as part and parcel of a world propagated on pillars that position white supremacy as a norm and reality. Here at Declarations, we have decided to take a stand. A decision to be as forthrightly anti-racist as we can in order to do our part in dismantling a system that has left so many individuals on the back burner. No longer can this conversation be ignored. We ask our listeners, all the people who t- tune in to this human rights podcast, to take an active anti-racist stand in the battle against racism, whether that be in your homes, in your communities, workplaces, or with your circle of friends. Do not let silence or complacency be your friend. This is a task for all of us to come together and to be boldly vocal in our stance against racism, particularly if you believe this issue doesn't directly impact your life you are being called out to address your privilege and to take an active stance in dismantling the racist institutions and power structures that carry on and oppress the marginalized and to look deeply within yourself to have those uncomfortable conversations regarding how you have been a part of a worldview built on systemic racism. On declarations, we've previously spoken about racial injustices in the language of rights that Black Lives Matter uses to address structural injustice, borders and how they treat bodies of different colors differently, racial capitalism and the racialization of citizenship. Racism is not an issue that is limited to the United States. It is a global issue, a global human rights issue that everyone, regardless of where you are or where you live, can and must address. Even here in the United Kingdom, the history of racism in Britain comes hand in hand with the ideological and economic underpinnings of the empire and colonialist mission to other and dominate based on false notions of superiority. The United Kingdom's history is stained with upheavals from decades of racial injustice, from the 1919 riots from Liverpool to South Wales, the 1958 Notting Hill race riots, the 1981 Brixton riots, repeated deaths of black individuals at the hands of state agents and due to negligence of state institutions, Stephen Lawrence, Zahid Mubarak. In other parts of the world, the patterns of violence and erasure are the same, but with different colors. The genocide of Rohingyas in Myanmar, centuries of violence against Dalits in India, the recent spates of racist attacks against people of East Asian origin across the world, discrimination against Africans in China, each with its own strand of bigotry. We will not keep silent. We are dedicating a page on our website to anti-racism resources, books, websites, articles, recommendations from you, our audience, so that you can unlearn many of the subtle but dangerous racist ideas we have been taught via our educational systems and that have been condoned in our societies. We are also embarking on a journey to explore aspects of racism on a national and global level. We will be having conversations on the history of racism, the institutional and systemic aspects of racism, and shining a light on the voices of those who have for so long been unheard. The time is now to have these conversations. Let's be bold, let's be vocally anti-racist.
It is what this moment requires. Welcome to this episode of Decorations. In this episode, we have a panel of multi-generational declarations panelists who are coming to us in this particular moment to pull together something a little bit different than what we usually do. It's a true pleasure to be gathered here with Ms. Bamalik, Helen Jennings, Muna Basim, and Jingmin Tan. I'll start with myself. My name is Matt Mamoudi, and I come to this as, first of all, a researcher. Um, I look at the manifestations of racial capitalism in numerous different ways, um, but especially in sort of the, the space of immigrants' rights. It has never been more blatantly obvious, I think, to the world, really, that the way that we derive our standards of living, enjoy our privileges, access spaces of personal growth, such as universities, or in other words, produce and consume, is intimately tied with the construction and violence against racialized, and in particular, Black people. The criminal justice system in America, of which George Floyd was a target, is the logical extreme of the white supremacist tendencies that underpins most of especially Western societies. I also come to this episode as a non-Black person of color with Middle Eastern roots who grew up in an ethnically homogenous white, tiny European island known as Denmark. It is acutely important for me that this conversation also points to some of the hypocrisies we're witnessing in this moment. It is hypocritical to stand with Black Lives Matter in Denmark if you remain silent and not only the historical entanglements of the Kingdom of Denmark with the transatlantic slave trade and their exploitation of slave labor in the former Danish West Indies, but the way in which that same structural and frankly aggressively overt racism manifests itself against Afro-descendant Danes, Black immigrants, and non-Western POCs in the country. Hi, my name is Jingmin. I'm coming at this from a variety of angles, but the reason that I first got interested and inflamed about racism and institutional racism is through my work with um, decolonizing the law faculty in Cambridge and through trying to understand what decolonize would require, um, I began looking at structures of imperialism and how that was built on racism. And in trying to envision what decolonize, decolonizing the academy would look like, um, I had to engage with these prior assumptions, um, which really is an, an ontological difference between white European colonizers and the way they think and the way they govern and their subjects. Um, I'm from a very different context. I'm from Singapore, which is a Chinese-majority country, and I'm a Chinese. Um, but the whole discussion that Black Lives Matter has generated has raised really interesting questions of race and racism in Singapore. It's made me have to grapple a lot more with my Chinese privilege in Singapore. The interesting debate of racism in Singapore when it's not necessarily recognized by the government. Finally, as a, as a person of faith and as a Christian, the church has a very checkered history um, that is intertwined with empire and colonialism. And I've been reflecting on reconciliation and reparation in that context too. Um, for me, as a Christian, if the gospel is to be embraced, 
then the past has to be acknowledged and reparations have to be made. My name is Muna Gassin, and I come to this topic with a very heavy heart. Um, the to this topic is so important to me. Um, as a Black woman, as someone who's going into law, my heart broke quite literally um, looking at the sheer injustice and hearing about the impunity that George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others have suffered because of the criminalization of the Black body. As Black people, because of the color of our skin, the experiences of racism are not new to many of us. Throughout our lives, we have learned to brush it aside, to avoid using the race card, because in a world built on white supremacy, the race card was quite frankly seen as taboo. And at this point, I am tired. I will no longer stand for this any longer. There is no being diplomatic in this topic. There is no brushing it aside. It is evidentially clear we live in a world where our systems and our institutions are built on racism. Racism is the norm and the grave injustices suffered by so many and that have resulted in the deaths and oppression of so many have quite frankly broken my heart. Black Lives Matter isn't a trend, it is a movement. It is a movement that is fighting against the inhumane injustice that is suffered by so many and is a result of global anti-blackness. I look at my brothers and sisters in the United States and I stand with them and I feel it. I feel their pain with every fiber of my being. Um, and I refuse, I refuse to, I refuse to sit silent um, any longer. This is something that we must address and we must talk about. My name is Helen Jennings. I come to this topic as a white person, as an Irish person, as a law student, and as someone who is on a path to becoming a criminal defense barrister. So I'm keenly aware of my own part in the system that has discriminated against and oppressed black people in the UK and across the world for so long. I'm conscious of the effects of systemic racism on the lived experience of black people throughout the world that I will never experience nor fully understand, but I can seek to understand how I am complicit in upholding racist power structures and how to undo and confront this. I come to this conversation with the hope to learn how to be a better ally, and I'm conscious that other white people are struggling with how and even if we should be using our voices on these, this issue. So I hope that we can shed some light there. As an activist, again, I'm seeking to discuss and learn how we can be most effective in tackling institutional racism and how to keep this conversation and action happening beyond the news cycle. As an LGBT person, I want to ensure we address the intersectionality of this issue and seek to protect our black LGBT community, especially black trans people who are being attacked from all sides. I also see solidarity between oppressed communities as essential here and everywhere in my own politics. As an Irish person, I want to make sure systemic racism is not just seen as an issue in the US. Confronting racism in the UK and Ireland means that we cannot think that we are immune. Ireland's treatment of refugees through the direct provision system, for example, is cruelty and racism in action. And hate crime against minority groups is hugely prevalent across the Republic and Northern Ireland. 
I'm standing with protesters in the US, but I'm also looking around me at home in confronting racism here too. So my name's Misbah, and this is actually my first time speaking on the podcast. I usually work on the publicity side of things, so behind the scenes. But I've come to realise after, you know, watching the news as everyone else has been, looking at things on Twitter and feeling physically sick at what I'm seeing, um, working behind the scenes is, isn't enough for me anymore uh, and I need to do more. And it's time, you know, for myself to become more vocal and more uh, directly contributing to the anti-racist mobilisation that we're trying to do here at Declarations. Um, so I come to this conversation as a non-Black person of colour, uh, specifically um, someone from the South Asian community. And I found that often this community feels as though we don't need to learn as much um, as our white counterparts um, and that we are automatically not racist uh, and automatically anti-racist just because of the fact that we are not white. Uh, but this is a dangerous myth. Uh, we are also complicit with upholding uh, racial regimes and, and anti-blackness uh, in our communities um, in a way that's different to the racism perpetuated by white people, but equally as damaging um, and just not talked about enough. So thank you all for, for joining us today and thank you so much for your, for your introductions. I wanna start us off by talking about something that exhaustingly has been around for too long and is distracting this debate massively. And that's of course this rallying cry around all lives matter. And to root that into a more local incident, as some of you may be aware, there have been some stickers coming up around the streets of Cambridge um, that use white supremacist hand signs and, and states um, it is okay to be white. I think people have this idea in their heads that like all lives, all lives matter means that when so it means that when you say black lives matter, white lives don't matter or other lives don't matter. When that is completely removed from the actual case, all lives obviously do matter. That's just a fact. Like human lives matter. But what we're talking about here is black lives because black lives have been disproportionately uh, disproportionately affected by systemic racism, institutionalized violence, state violence, we are fighting for black lives. It doesn't mean you as a white person or a non-black person of color um, don't matter, or don't have value. It just means that when you're a black person, you aren't inherently given your value as a human being. There's a lack of dignity. When you come to the table, when you sit at a table, um, as a person of color, as a black person, you're not inherently given your value. It's almost as if you have to earn it, you have to prove it, you have to work harder. Um, whereas if you're usually a, like a white person, it's given to you by nature. You you are valuable. You are a human being. You are worthy. And that means that Black Lives Matter becomes a radical statement, even though it shouldn't be. That's a, a final validation of this lived experience of having been told you don't matter. You are not worthy. You are not the focus of discussion ever. You're, you know, you don't see yourself on TV You what you unless it's on the news, unless it's um, other people from your community getting brutalized or murdered. It's so when when Black Lives Matter is used in this way, it's it it feels new and and needed and so necessary, um, and that's why it's so effective. To the point that you mentioned about how it's linking to privilege, um, I think the whole concept of Black Lives Matter, as you said, is a very very radical statement, and for someone who's white whose whole identity is rooted in their whiteness, 
the idea of your whiteness is that you are better than everyone else. Um, and so to, to hear actually these people are not better than you, but black people are equally as good as you, suddenly that feels like inequality because you're used to being better. And the second that someone else is leveled to that, it kind of feels as though you're having some sort of worth or some sort of uh, privilege taken away. And, and, that's- and that's what those stickers in Cambridge are getting at, right? Exactly. Yeah. I can see from a white person's point of view why it might potentially sound threatening or it might, sa- it might feel like an attack when someone says that Black Lives Matter. It upsets their normality. It subverts what they're, what they're normally used to. And I think that potentially might be a root of why they might co- counter with a statement like All Lives Matter because it sounds, it sounds happy, it sounds nice. It sounds unthreatening, but what we're trying to get at in this episode and hopefully through this series is that we need to challenge these norms. Mm. So what I'm hearing is really that All Lives Matter, to all of your points, is really a reflection of the white supremacist structure that has been normalized into sort of our existence. How do we begin to sort of dismantle that, right? Like, Helen, you seem to have some ideas for this. It might be a good idea to first break down that phrase white supremacy because a lot of white people certainly and a lot of I think a lot of people um, relate that to the image of like the KKK, you know, but actually what we're talking about is the normalization of white people as the archetype. Um, Yeah, I think just on that point, exactly. So our world is centered on whiteness. And I think you see remnants of this from, you know, uh, colonialism, right? And this idea of the empire and colonization and the idea of othering others. So how can you seem tall unless someone else is short next to you? And so it's the idea that how can you be superior unless someone else is made to feel inferior, right? So when you look all around you, you look at the media, you look at what we're being taught in our education institutions, you look at the scholars that we value and privilege, you look at the norm, and the norm is a white person. The norm is never a person of color. You see that on a daily basis, and you see that being taught to children, um, and you see that even in countries um, that gain their countries that gain their independence from colonialism, you still have remnants of that sort of inferiority complex that remains. It's the idea that the whiter you are, the closer to white, the better. And it's it's a thing that is global. It's a pervasive global idea, and you see it all around you. And I think acknowledging that the world that we live in is built on white supremacy is such an important starting place because it doesn't mean that you need to be a part of the KKK or be a violent individual to be a part of a system that privileges whiteness. It's just a fact of the world that we live in. Yeah, to your to your point, I think it's important to remember that the construction of race and the very concept of whiteness was founded in alterity to, to blackness. Uh, if we look back at colonialism, um, this the the whole idea of what it meant to be white was you know constructed in opposition to the backwardsness and opposed supposed savagery of you know black populations and colonized populations so to to speak to your point again about how you don't have to be a member of the kkk to be upholding these racialized regimes it is just the very existence of whiteness as the norm is inherently violent and inherently um othering to to blackness and to that something that i've been noticing that has been really destructive currently in ireland is the idea that 
people from former colonized countries, white people can't be racist. (laughs) And it is, it's infuriating and mind blowing and so disappointing. And the idea that there is any loophole to not being part of the structures of white supremacy as a white person is farcical. Yes, there are white ethnic minority groups who are discriminated against. There is no doubt about that, Um, especially um, in Ireland, again, as my example, especially Eastern European white people and um, members of the traveler communities are discriminated against every day. But that does not mean as a white person, anyone gets a free pass here. That's not saying that you are being actively racist in your own life to your friends, but you are always still participating in the structures that uphold this institutional racism. So let's talk about that structure. I mean, this feeds really nicely into what we wanted to uh, engage with you uh, as an audience on today. And I think that goes to talking about systemic and institutional racism and talking about specifically um, sort of the concept of, of racial capitalism. And just to delve in on that a little bit, um, historically, there's been a need to create this idea that someone or a group of people uh, deserve to be put in a lower social or hierarch- hierarchical standing um, than the um, more superior uh, group of people in order that we may exploit them off their labor. Uh, specifically, sugar has obviously been historically Um, crucial to the formation of racial capitalism. Uh, It emerges that the transatlantic slave trade comes on the back of the discovery of sugar and the need to expand sugar production. And so the creation of an othered population um, and specifically mobilizing around black bodies for that uh, has been ways in which, you know, racial capitalism, which really is what we understand when we say capitalism today, um, has, has come about. And the ways in which that then seeps into our daily lives is really what we need to talk about now, right? So um, institutional racism, what do we mean by that? Even when we look at our world institutions, right, the economic exploitation of colonialism, the commoditization of Black bodies, and you look at the deals that so many African countries have with the IMF, the World Bank, um, the, the fact that so many of these countries are forced into commoditizing one main crop, one main product. And then you see this also carried forth in the United States with the end of slavery, right? And then mass incarceration, forced labor. Forced labor was essentially slavery continued. So there was never any single time in history where African-Americans were necessarily truly in the same way free, right? And it's carried forth in all of our institutions. So it's the criminalization of the Black body. So when you have Um, a reason to sort of arrest African-Americans in large, large numbers so that they can work essentially for free, because according to the 13th Amendment, um, you know, slavery is allowed. When you're in prison, slavery is allowed. And so that's something that we really, really need to question. And I think, you know, President Nixon even even made it clear that it was his war on crime, his war on drugs was a way to arrest Black bodies. It was essentially just to cover. It was political speak for a way to arrest Black bodies. So you see it in this day and age, it's carried forth. You see people of color being uh, being arrested for, for minor crimes and serving excessive sentences. You see, you see for-profit prisons and you ask yourself, why are prisons for-profit? Why isn't that money being invested into community endeavors? You see it in the billions and billions of dollars being spent on police institutions. And then 
you know, you know, a large part of the movement now is defunding the police. And a big reason for that is because the police are getting an excessive amount of um, capital, of wealth. And that wealth isn't being invested into the communities that those police have historically targeted and marginalized. And so that's, a, I think, a large part of, you know, institutional racism is these, this idea, this idea that Black is dangerous, um, the criminalization of the Black body, the history of mass incarceration, the war on crime, the war on drugs, um, you know, and starting from the Jim Crow laws. And then you think to yourself, why aren't we spending this money on the community? Why aren't we working to prevent the root causes of, um, you know, excessive poverty, violence? Why are we just looking at a symptom and spending more and more money each year, but nothing is really changing? And that's something that I think we really need to ask ourselves. That's really incisive, Mona. Going off of exactly that point, I think we've now also seen lots of corporations coming out as a part of their corporate social responsibility campaigns, trying to mobilize around this Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, it's hypocritical, uh, especially given some of the in, you know, injustices and whatever else that these companies have been involved with that is fundamentally surrounding <laughs> racial capital. Um, and I know Ms. Uh, has some thoughts on that. Yeah, so for me, when I see, you know, these brands coming out with slogans supporting the movement, um, I can't help but sort of compare their, their front-facing ethics with their behind-the-scenes ethics. So these companies, for example, um, will be coming out saying we support Black, the Black Lives Matter movement. But then if you think about, for example, the racialization of the uh, global value uh, chains that they are participating in and this whole idea of, you know, um, the race to the bottom and who is actually at the bottom of this, who are the people at the bottom of the you know, global value chains. Um, I think it shows that their capitalism and their well, capitalism in general is still being upheld on these racialized regimes. So I, I think it's just really, as you say, Matt, hypocritical whenever I see it. I just, I just don't trust them. When... Um, and I think, you know, even when we talk about the nature of capitalism, right? The nature of capitalism is the exploitation of wealth. It's using labor, exploiting labor in order to extract a huge amount of wealth. And so if we look at the nature of capitalism, and even if you look at the United States, right, a highly capitalistic society, some, a society that is built on, yes, make money, individualism, uh, get to the top no matter what it takes, I think the nature of capitalism is rooted in an exploit on the exploitation of labor. And that's just part and parcel of what it means to be a capitalist and to be a part of a capitalist capitalist system. And so we see these large corporations, right? And as you were saying, Ms. But like uh, very, very performatively saying, I support, you know, Black Lives Matter and creating these ad campaigns and creating these like nice Instagram graphics. And I say, and I look at it and I think, okay, you know, it's good, I guess, in a way that you're raising awareness, but is this truly is this truly changing the way that our world functions? Is this truly making an impact? Because Fundamentally, it can't, because if you're a large capitalist corporation, you're essentially building your wealth off the exploitation of others, because that's how you extract capital, right? I mean, as the individual, there is absolutely no moral high ground you can take here in still supporting these companies and in like sharing their, um, their statements on this. As, as your form of activism. I've seen people on my Instagram um, timeline sharing like the the Nike um, just don't do it campaign as if this this is who they're going to put forward as the people that they share their ethics with. As the individual, there is no way of getting around 
the fact that these companies mm-hmm. exploit people. And it's not only in the way that you're talking about in the in the general um, capitalism is exploitation of labor, right? Like you don't have to be a, a high theorist to to understand that not only are they exploiting people in that way, but also what is essentially slavery and forced labor and servitude. And you see this through through sweatshops and through, you know, we've had so much discussion on the impact of poor working environments and low wages and essentially slavery in um, fast fashion recently, that as the individual, you need to do more than just getting behind these brands. As activists, we can't be giving these companies more of our own money. I think there also is a big um, sort of counter narrative against this though. And I think a lot of the uh, true allyship that I see, you know, on social media is people, um, advertising black owned businesses and saying you know buy from these businesses stop buying from corporations um and i think this is something i don't know if it's just sort of the echo chamber that i'm in but it seems to be really um taking hold of everyone and this is kind of how everyone is actually learning to be you know an actual anti-racist ally um so hopefully that is sort of a not a trend but a change that people will actually be making in their lives that will continue. So speaking about allyship, I think there are a number of different examples that have been mentioned here that are potentially productive. I know, Jing, you have some ideas around how we can think about allyship, and I'm keen to hear. Yeah, I think Ms. Bus said something in our early conversation about how the time has passed for awareness raising to be sufficient. It's no longer about posting a black box on your Instagram feed anymore because that that just edifies you, right? It's it's about virtue signaling and you want people to know that you're not a racist and that you support the Black Lives Matter movements. But that's not enough anymore. I think as allies, there are more concrete ways that we can seek to make a difference, of course, depending on the context that we're situated in. But you can do in the UK, for example, you can do things like write to your MP to push for the UK to stop selling tear gas to and rubber bullets to the US. You can push for, you can write to your MP to push for um, justice for Belly Majinga um, in the UK, who was a black woman who passed away after she was spat on at a at an underground station. So there are many ways that you can actually push for change um, and champion um, champion the cause of being anti-racist and dismantling white supremacy. I think also um, another very important way, and but maybe not so visible, is in the individual conversations that we have with people in our immediate vicinity, like our family um, and our friend groups. There's a lot of educating that can happen just through conversations and of course if you're a black person or a person of color it it sometimes does it sometimes is unfair to be expected to explain things all the time especially when you're already bearing the burden of emotional labor that you have to go through just through existing in a in a racist society and in a racist world but there are ways that we can um, inform our friends and our family of resources that they can access if they want to educate themselves and to correct um, mistaken impressions 
um, where we have the capacity to. So I absolutely agree with all of what you've said there. And I feel like you have broken down this point on activism and on allyship in a really um in a really accessible way which is amazing i want to just draw out a couple of points there firstly i've seen a lot of people especially white people on my social media take umbrage with the fact that they are being in any way criticized for how they are engaging with this conversation right now um so i wanted to to draw out that idea of virtue signaling and what it is and how we can avoid it And then also just dealing with what I see as um, the the childishness of of white people being very upset at at this criticism of the way that they're approaching activism. Um, Yeah, I've seen a lot, a lot of um, white people or like non-black people of color feel very sort of, I would say, defensive, defensive at being critiqued for not maybe speaking up or doing enough. Um, and I and I think that is something that really needs to be dealt with. I think we need to ask ourselves why that's making, you know, you so defensive. Um, just because, you know, because you're not doing enough and what that even means. And like, this goes into performative, right? So if you're living your life on a daily basis and then you think that posting, you know, like a black box is enough and people are saying, no, that's not enough. You need to take action. And you feel like, that is shaming you into action, then you need to really question yourself why you're feeling a sense of shame, why your reaction is so defensive, why you're making this about you, why you're making this a personal thing. And I think um, and I think that is in itself is very problematic. And then I also think the idea of, you know, going to your black friends and, you know, telling them what you're doing is also kind of it defeats the purpose because this is an injustice in our world that is occurring right now. Black people are dying. People of color are being criminalized um, and being shot at. People are people are being criminalized for the color of their skin, and I think that really needs to hit, like set in. And I think seeking validation to absolve yourself of the slight amount of guilt or the feeling of fragility that you feel because um, I'm because you feel like you've maybe not done enough is completely beyond the purpose. You don't need you shouldn't be seeking the validation of your black friend to make you feel better about the action that you're taking. You should be taking the action because it's an action against injustice. Stop seeking validation for, you know, for, you know, doing, uh, doing your part (laughs) because that is part and parcel of what it means to be an active anti-racist, but also just to be an ally, right? It's to take an active approach to helping out as much as you can to unlearning so many of the racist things that you have learned and chances are everyone in this world has learned many racist things because our institutions are built on racism it's having those difficult conversations not only with your circle of friends but i think so so importantly those difficult conversations with yourself address the prejudice inherent within you address this discomfort and embrace it because that's the only way we're going to move past this it's, it's like, look really deeply within yourself and understand that there is probably a time in your life that you have been racist or you have held racist views and acknowledge it and deal with it and unlearn it. I think that is so, so, so important and stop getting defensive. This isn't about you. It's not personal. This is about fighting injustice. Yeah, so to your point about 
fragility and discomfort this is a conversation I've had so many times with friends you know white friends and also my friends who are non-black people of color and I think it's it's important to note that this guilt and this shame and embarrassment that you feel at, at upholding these racial regimes are valid they are valid emotions but it's what you do with these feelings and as you said you know do not become defensive when you're called out for things or where you know, you're maybe not getting the recognition that you feel like you deserve for the things that you're doing to be an anti-racist ally. Um, do not take these emotions of guilt and unload them onto your black friends. Have those conversations, but have them with other white people, other non-black people of color. Do not put your black friends through more emotional labor coming to them saying, oh, I feel so bad about the fact that I've, I'm uphold, upholding racism, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Make sure that those feelings are being used in a way that is productive. Do not make the conversation about yourself and those feelings. Use those feelings to start the important conversations that need to be had. I mean, this is not to say that we shouldn't be checking in and supporting our Black friends and and family members and, and members of our community, though. Um, I think that that is completely appropriate. And just to say that we are here, we are listening and 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 feeling feeling for them and for what they're going through then also just just moving off your point um muna of the idea of seeking validation um something that has been particularly grating to me during this conversation has been people co-opting protests and um and trends in activism for clout it's for it's for internet clout that's what it is there has been a a video circling on the internet of a woman dressed like she's going to Coachella um, <laughs> proposing in the street with her own personal photographer in the middle of a protest. There's another um, picture of Kendall Jenner um, holding up a sign that said Black Lives Matter. But in the shadow behind her, you can see that there's nothing actually in her hands and the the sign has been photoshopped in. But yeah, the idea that people are co-opting um, this movement which is based off of such pain and such um injustice for their follower counts is disgusting i don't know why you know a lot of influencers think that this can't be seen through because it's very evident and and just with people in general not even influencers so if you have been going about your normal life you have uh, not said anything at all <laughs> and then you decided to post like one picture and say like okay that's my activism I mentioned on my story black lives matter and like I'm done I'm good like that's it people can see through that I think you know what's so important to remember this isn't a fight that is only solely placed on black people black people have been fighting for this for our whole lives we have been the the we have experienced racism it's a time for every single person to come together and fight for black lives matter don't let that responsibility solely fall on your black friends or people of color because people of color and black people have been fighting for this since colonization right so i think like if you are a white person um if you are a non-black person of color, do not think that you can just post your one little black box and go about your daily life and pretend that, you know, racism doesn't exist or that, like, it's okay, like, I don't need to deal with this right now. Um, you know, it's more than that. Like, let's stop being performative. Like, it's if you've done it, okay, like, now move on and take action because now is the time. And take action in the ways, the many practical ways that Jing was, was talking about earlier. Um, you know, write to your MPs, get out in the streets, um, open your purse, 
open your purse and donate to a bail fund or a black-led charity or a black-owned business. Um, but also, thank you, Mina, for saying that because I have noticed um, so many white people also saying, and I think it's a bit of an excuse, but saying, hmm, am I really the right person to talk on this? Maybe as a white person, I shouldn't say anything at all. And that is not enough anymore, exactly as you say. It's not on us to to help shoulder the burden here. Yeah, and I and I acknowledge, you know, a lot of, you know, I acknowledge, I under, I can see where that's coming from, like saying that this is a, like, I don't want to take up space. A lot of white people saying, I don't want to take up space from black people. Their voices need to be heard. Yes, their voices need to be heard, but your voices need to be heard right beside them, speaking with them in solidarity. And that's important to remember. So do not, once again, place the burden on people of color fighting for their rights because it's a human right and you're a human being, so you better fight alongside them. The thing to take from this is that allyship and being an ally is not a noun, it's a verb. It's something that you need to be continuously doing on screen, off screen, whether people see you um, doing it or not. Thank you all so much for your interventions. Um, as you can hear as the audience, what we're trying to do is have a conversation tying in different struggles in what is happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as what has happened uh, through the struggle and fight we have seen in the wake of the injustices faced by George Floyd and many others. In the next coming weeks, we will be releasing three practical episodes. Uh, first of all, around how to protest, We'll be focusing on how to protest safely. Um, so that'll be across both the legal domain as well as your physical, mental health. Um, secondly, we'll be releasing an episode on how to help or how to be engaged in the act of activism on and offline. Uh, and thirdly, we'll be talking about how to challenge racism in your own personal relationships. And we've got hopes here for a longer series and we are planning to fully stay engaged on this as long as, long as it's needed, frankly, because this is not a conversation that's gone away for the last 400 or more years and it's not a conversation that is going to go away anytime soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Declarations. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You can also find resources, especially around anti-racism, on our website at declarationspod.com, which we will be updating over the next couple of weeks. I'm Matt Mamudi. I'm Jingmin Tan. I'm Helen Jennings. I'm Ms. Bamalik. I'm Winna Gassim. And this is Declarations. <laughs>